We commenced a study in this book a few weeks ago and we said at that time that it was a prison epistle that is to say the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to a church when he was in jail and it is interesting how he describes himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God but he also describes himself in another place as the prisoner of the Lord. He could have said he was a prisoner of the Romans, but he was a prisoner of the Lord. He felt that he was there in God's will. He was there, not out of God's will, but because God wanted him there. Now he may well have felt, as sometimes we feel in our lives, that we could be more useful someplace else. He may have felt I would be far better out of jail being able to go around with my normal ministry preaching the word. But that was not God's will for him at this time. God's will for him at that time was to be a witness for him in prison. But while he was there, he was able to prove that his pen was mightier than his sword because he was able to write to churches and to individuals and to encourage them in the things of God. And that's what he did here. He's writing to a church... And by the way, this is almost 2,000 years ago. But yet, the epistle to the Colossians is right up to date. Because the things that are taught here in this epistle, as well as the rest of Scripture, are relevant to us, to our lives. God is saying something not just to the Colossian church, which was located in a particular place in Asia, it was one of three cities that were a triumvirate that Paul had ministered to remotely. Hierapolis, Laodicea and Colossae. But even though these words were written to that church in that time frame, at that locality, in that geographical location, these words are for us. And we have to understand that when we come to the scriptures. What is God saying to me from this portion? Of his word. Obviously, you look at this first chapter, Paul introduces himself. Today, if you're writing a letter to somebody, you put your name at the end. So you have to go all the way to the end of the letter, see if you want to read it or not. But Paul put his name at the start, so they knew it was, it was from him. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, the word apostle means sent one. So he was sent by God, he was conscious of that. That he was in the will of God and he joined his partner's name to that, Timotheus, in ministry. He made the letter to be from him as well. And you'll notice that he addressed it to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae. Now when he says to the saints, the Greek word here simply means holy ones. There are those in some communions who will tell you that saints are people who have died. They're already in eternity. And that you pray to them and they do favors for you with God. That's not what the Bible says about saints. Saints in the Bible were living people. The saints were actually alive at that time in Colossae. People who were viewed as holy by God, who were being made holy by the work of His Spirit. And they're referred to as faithful brethren or brothers. They were faithful. Faithfulness is a wonderful quality. Sometimes you ask someone to do something, 
And you know fine well they're not going to do it. You just know they're not going to do it because there's a track record there. You can remember the last time you asked that person to do something, they didn't do it. Or they didn't do it on time. So you couldn't really say they were faithful. Faithfulness is a wonderful quality to be dependable. But these people were faithful in terms of their stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they're called faithful brethren in Christ. They were faithful to God. They were fervent and sincere Christians living in Colossae. And I explained that Colossae was a very wicked place. It was a place that was such as some of our modern American cities like Chicago or New York or San Francisco. It was a place of many different cultures, many cultures that clashed, many different religions, many different ideas. Uh, One of the chief ideas that was at work in Colossae was Gnosticism. The Gnostics were so called because they felt that they had knowledge. They had knowledge of secret and spiritual things. You're familiar with the word today, agnostic. An agnostic is someone who says they don't know. They're not atheists, they are agnostics. It's like, I don't know. It has to be proved to me whether it's true or not. But that word agnostic comes from the same root. The Gnostics were people who thought they did know. They knew everything. Especially when it came to spirits and angels and God. They had some really weird and wonderful ideas. And they had started to infiltrate the church at Colossae. Which was a faithful church. It was a a church that had people in it who believed the gospel. But they were in danger of being subverted of being led astray from that gospel into other belief systems. And of course that's relevant to today because you have all manner of different thoughts out there. All manner of different views. And many of them are not at all based upon the Bible. They're things that have been thought up by people. And you're going to discover that many of these that are so-called new religions or new thoughts are actually not new at all. They've been in existence for a long, long time, even from the days of the apostles. But when you read this book, I've made this point that it divides very easily into two sections. I like it when things are easily divided up. And Colossians has four chapters in the English. Chapters 1 and 2, and chapters 3 and 4. Chapters 1 and 2 go together. They are the doctrinal section of the book. In other words, there's a lot of teaching here. Teaching about Christ. Teaching about salvation. And then you have chapters 3 and 4, which is not so much doctrinal, but the outworking of that in practice. Chapters 3 and 4 are practical. In other words, if you believe the gospel and the truth in chapters 1 and 2, it's going to make a difference in your life, chapters 3 and 4. That's how you read this book. The epistle begins with an introductory salutation. Paul is addressing the saints. He's telling them who's writing. He's saying some nice things about them, but not just to be nice. He's saying these things because they happen to be true. He says in verse 3, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. You Paul must have done a lot of praying because when you read the various epistles, Romans, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, the ones that he wrote to Timothy and to Titus and to Philemon. He's telling them all that he's praying for them. 
must have had a big prayer list. That's a great thing to pray for other people. And Paul did that. He said, praying always for you. And what was in his mind when he prayed? Verse 5 and verse 6. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints. So there are two things. They had trust in Christ. They believed in him. But then they had love for all the saints, for all the other Christians. They were loving people. And he says, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. When they heard the gospel preached, they heard that if you come to Christ and are saved by his grace, when you die, you'll go to heaven. And that's simple, isn't it? When I was young, there was a saying, people need to hear the message that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. There's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. Heaven and hell. They're both talked about in Scripture. Paul was thankful that these people had a hope that was laid up for them in heaven. I made the point, I make it again. Verse 5 when it says the hope. It's not the kind of hope that you and I are familiar with where we say, well I hope so. Are you going to be there Friday? Well, I hope so. I'm not too sure. I'm going to try. But I don't know if I'll make it or not. That's a hope. But the kind of hope that is associated with the gospel is more than that. It is a settled conviction and assurance. That's what this word means. The hope of heaven. In other words, it's a sure hope. There's no question about it. There's no ambiguity. It's definitely going to happen. We're going to heaven. And Paul thanks God for that. You heard that before, he said, in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come unto you as it is in all the world. Now the apostle in this first chapter focuses the attention of these people in this letter right away, not to him, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. Always beware of preachers who draw attention to themselves. I do not like the practice where men call ministries after their own name. Stephen Hamilton Ministries. I don't like that. I'm not here to preach about myself. I'm not here to get people's attention on me. I am here, and every preacher who's worth his salt should be there in the pulpit to draw attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a story once told of an auctioneer. And he was going to auction off a beautiful masterpiece painting. It was almost priceless, but it was being auctioned that day. And the auctioneer was so keen that people's attention would be fixed on that work of art that he actually stood to the side in behind the work of art and could just about see the people and no more when he was making when they were making bids. And he would respond so much and he advanced on that so much and they were auctioning the painting. And someone asked him afterwards, what were you doing? Standing there behind the painting, out of sight. He said, because it's not about me. It's about the masterpiece. It's about the work of the master. The master painter in that case. And it's like that with the gospel. It's not about those who preach the message, though God sends men to preach. It's about the master. It's about the work of the master. It's about getting people's eyes upon him. 
And so that's what Paul does here. He focuses their attention upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how many times he mentions Jesus Christ in the first four verses. An apostle of Jesus Christ, to the saints in Christ, grace and peace unto you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then again in verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. It's all about Christ. It's all about the Lord Jesus. And so as we look at this portion of Scripture, there are two things especially that come before us. I want us to think about them tonight for a few minutes. The greetings that were extended. The first two verses show us the greetings that were extended. And we've dealt with that already. The preacher, the partner, Timothy, the people, and the provisions, grace and peace. And then there was the gratitude that was expressed. Paul's thanksgiving, the constancy of it, and the causes of it. Why was he thanking the Lord? He was thanking the Lord for their faith and for their love. But there's two things further that I want to deal with tonight. And they are, number one, the grace that had been experienced by them. The grace that had been experienced by them. The word grace is a really interesting word. If you used it as a mnemonic, you could say grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. The grace of God is something that is free. It's not earned. The grace of God is something that he freely bestows. You don't buy it. You receive it. You don't achieve it. You receive it. And Paul talks about this grace in verses 5 and 6. He mentions at the end of verse 5, in the word of the truth of the gospel. A gospel, he says, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, he means the Roman world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. Ye knew the grace of God in truth. Now notice how Paul talks about the gospel. And the gospel is simply a word that means good news. And you can take that as gospel. It's the good news. And he speaks about the gospel referring to at least five things briefly. Look at this wonderful message, the gospel. Notice the reliability of it. It's called the word of the truth of the gospel. Verse 5. The truth. The gospel of Christ is true. Now there are some who will tell you that it's not. There are others who will preach a different message altogether. But the gospel of the Bible, the gospel of Christ is true. And it's the old gospel and it is the original gospel as opposed to a newfangled gospel that some were propagating at Colossae. There were some who were teaching a different message. And you will note here that Paul refers to this as being a gospel that is old in a sense because it's one that they had heard before. Verse 5. Whereof he heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. In other words, at the first. This is the gospel you heard at the very beginning when you first came to know Christ. And the gospel that Paul is referring to is the one that he referred to in Galatians chapter 1. Let me read these few verses to you. You think, well, 
There may be other Gospels that are just as valid as the Gospel of Christ. No. Here's the great intolerance of the Gospel of Christ. It's the only Gospel. It's the only saving message. Look at Galatians chapter 1 from verse 6. Paul's writing to a different group of churches and he says, I marvel, I'm surprised that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Which is not another. When you read that, it's another, but it's not another. Isn't that a contradiction? Well, it is in English, but not in the Greek language from which it is translated. When he says another gospel, verse 6, he means another of a different kind. Which is not another, verse 7, of the same kind. That's how we must understand this. This is another gospel altogether, which is of a different kind, which is not another version of the same gospel. It's a different gospel altogether. There will be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Now notice what he says in verse 8. But, though we are an angel from heaven, even somebody as beautiful as that, an angel, whose word you would automatically accept. You say, well, he's an angel, isn't he? He's going to tell me the truth. Paul says, if I were to do this, or even an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. The word in the original, the Greek there, is the word anathema. It literally means to be damned in the lowest hell. Wow, this is strong, isn't it? This is really strong language from a preacher. He says, if anybody preaches any other gospel than the one that I have preached, let him be damned in the lowest hell. That's how serious it is. And then in case you didn't get it the first time, he says in verse 9, As we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Same word, anathema. Let him be damned in the lowest hell. You mean, preacher, you believe that somebody who doesn't believe the same gospel that you preach is going to hell? That's exactly what I believe. That's exactly what I believe. And it's not true because I say it. It's true because that's what the scripture says. This is God's word. I'm not going to argue with the Lord. See, Paul's concern was for the reliability of the gospel, for truth, for the truth of the gospel. I want to tell people the truth. I would never want anyone to come to me and say, you didn't tell me the truth. I stand before God and I'm lost. I'm going to go to hell because you didn't tell me the truth. Somebody in my next door, we love our neighbors by the way, but if our next door neighbor, his house went on fire, and I was to say to my wife, look, their house is on fire, but let's, let's not bother them. Let's not bother I don't want to wake them up in the middle of the night. Let's just, let's just let the fire rage. Would I do that? Of course I wouldn't do that. That's not kind. That's not kind. That's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to raise the alarm. You're supposed to tell them they're in danger. You're supposed to tell them you better get out of there or you're going to lose your life. It's the same in preaching the word of the truth of the gospel. These are serious things. The gospel is the only message that will save men and women for eternity. 
It's a reliable message. But notice as well the revelation of the gospel. Uh, twice Paul mentions here to the Colossians, ye heard. Did you notice that? He said in verse 5, whereof ye heard before. And then verse 6, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it. They heard the gospel. In other words, somebody went to them and told them. Somebody went to them and told them. The truth of the gospel was preached to them. It was revealed to them. And folks, that's the responsibility of Christians in the world. We read in Paul's words to the Romans, Romans 10 verse 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Earlier in that chapter he says, How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they hear without a preacher? That's what inspired missionaries like William Carey who went from England to India. He recognized in his day there was a lot of trade between England and India. In fact there was a company called the East India Company that used to trade bringing tea from India to England and bringing goods and services from England to India. And he said, well, if we can exchange trade like that, can't we take the gospel to them? They're in heathendom. They're worshipping false gods. When a man dies, the widow throws herself on the funeral pyre. They're all manner of heathen practices going on. They need the gospel. And William Carey left his shoe store, he left his cobbler's work, and he went with others to India to preach the gospel. Learning very difficult languages, it took him eight years before he saw his first convert. Eight years before anybody would listen to what he said. See, the gospel needs to be heard. It's not a treasure to be hidden in the ground. It is a message to be revealed, to be preached. Somebody has to go and tell. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, Jesus said. It's a reliable word. It's a word that is revealed. Notice then the reach of the gospel. We just mentioned it. All the world. You see this in verse 6 of Colossians 1? He said, this gospel which has come unto you as it is in all the world. And he was referring, as I say, to the whole Roman world at that time. The gospel had been preached all throughout Asia by Paul and others. This was not a message just for one culture. This was not a message just for one race or one ethnic group. This is a message for those of every nation. When you read the book of Revelation, you see that there are people there in heaven... And they're from every kindred, every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. All over the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world, we used to sing. The gospel is for those of every nation. Therefore, Christians ought to have a worldwide missionary vision. I'm really glad that we have the opportunity to spread the word in places like Liberia. I've never been to Liberia. Maybe one of these days I'll get to visit it. 
But if I don't, it doesn't really matter because I visit it every day on the radio. And people listen. They go around on motorcycles with their transistors to their ears. And Mr. DeCanio has told me about that, hearing my voice on a street in Liberia. Unbelievable. I wonder if they can understand me. It's a message for every nation. Look at Romans 1 verse 16. Here's Paul saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And why would we be ashamed of it? For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Doesn't matter about your nationality. Paul says the gospel can be sent to you. We ought to have a worldwide missionary vision. The gospel is a universal message and men out of every nation are going to be converted by it. And Paul knew by experience that this same message would do the job wherever it was preached. I just read there where he said that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I just read an illustration of the great C.H. Spurgeon who was a Baptist preacher in London at the end of the 19th century. Spurgeon was booked to preach at a big gospel rally in a place in England, a big crystal cathedral known as the Crystal Palace. A place that held well over 6,000 people. And he was going to preach there without the aid, like we have today, of microphones. He just had to depend upon the ordinary acoustics. And so Spurgeon went to visit the Crystal Palace when it was empty. And went up to the place where the platform was going to be, where he was going to preach. And he thought he would test out his voice. So as loudly as he could, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And unbeknownst to him, away in the further reaches of that great place, there was a workman doing some repairs that day. He heard that word. And as a result of hearing that text, he was converted. Oh, the power of God's word. When the Holy Spirit takes that word and buries it in someone's heart. And that brings us to this thought, the reception of the gospel. See, Paul said, it's something that you heard. But then in verse 6 of chapter 1, he says, Which has come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. See, they heard, but then it did something in their lives. They knew the grace of God in truth. In other words, they knew the grace of God by experience. Theirs was not a false profession, but a true work of grace. If I had a dollar for every time I met somebody who said that they were a Christian and it turned out that they weren't a Christian at all, I'd be a very rich man. It's so easy for people to say, especially in our culture, oh yes, I'm a Christian, oh yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. But when it gets to be difficult to follow Christ, when it starts to cost you something to follow Christ, when you lose your friends because you follow Christ, and people make fun of you because you follow Christ, that's a different matter. There are some fair-weather friends that the Lord has. But not among the Colossians. 
This is a true work of grace. He said, the gospel which has come unto you, and literally that means, which made its entrance felt among you. That's what that means. It made its entrance felt among you. In other words, the gospel went to work in your lives. The power of the gospel message was experienced by you. It overcame your rebellious heart. It melted your opposition to God and to Christ. You were saved. My late dad, when he used to give his testimony all the time, I used to love to hear it. I used to love to listen to the story of how he got converted. It was quite amazing. My dad was a man of the world. Big time drinker and all the stuff that goes with it. My dad was not in any way, shape or form a religious man. He was very irreligious. He told me they had a most filthy tongue. I couldn't believe that. I never heard my dad ever, ever utter an oath. I never heard him use like bad language of any description, ever. Yet he told me before he got converted, every other word was like the F-bomb all the time. But God did a work in his heart. And the night my dad got saved, he talked about it many, many times. He was in a service with a whole bunch of religious people. He wasn't religious himself, but he found himself in that meeting. And he said when he heard the gospel preach, his heart melted. The tears came to his eyes. He began weeping uncontrollably in that seat. And he said he realized that night, as he had never before, that he was a guilty, hell-deserving, rotten sinner who was definitely going to split hell wide open if he died. And he needed God's forgiveness. And he sought it that night and he found it. And his life was radically changed. See, the gospel made its entrance felt in his life. And I'm ever so glad about that because I was born then into a Christian home. Paul is seeking here to show these Colossian people how foolish it would be to abandon such a powerful message as this. Why would you want to go after some other false message when you know the great effect that this gospel of Christ has had upon you? There's no other message like it. There's no other effect like the effect that comes upon your life when you feel the power of the gospel. And that brings us to this as well as the reception of the gospel, the results of the gospel. See that word there, and bringeth forth fruit. Verse 6. It bringeth forth fruit. In other words, it works. The gospel works. He said, this is a gospel that has come unto you, as it is in all the world, and it brings forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. It has brought forth fruit in your life. It has changed your lives. And isn't that the acid test? The results that the gospel message produces in people's lives? Producing righteous and holy living? It changes people. There was a Chinese person once who was visited by a missionary who came to his village. And he said, sir, have you ever heard the gospel? He said, I don't know if I have, but I've seen it. 
said, what do you mean you've seen it? And he mentioned a certain man who was professing now to be a Christian. He said, the radical change in that man tells me that the gospel is true. I've seen it. You see, the gospel truly received makes a difference in the lives of those that give heed to it. Sometimes people get mixed up when they talk about faith and works. There are religions, there are teachings that claim to be Christian and they'll tell you that you're saved by works. You're not saved by works. You're saved by Christ's work. But if you are truly saved, it will result in works of righteousness in your life. See, you have to get the cart not before the horse, but after the horse. You come to Christ, that's faith, and then you live for Christ, that's works. But the works don't save you. I'm not saved because I live for the Lord. I'm saved because the Lord saved me. And then I want to live for Him. I want to be different. I don't want to sin any longer. Do I sin? Yes, I sin. And I feel bad about my sin. And I repent of my sin. And I want the Lord to forgive me for my sin. Because I know that I've done or said or thought something wrong. But that's works. And James chapter 2 puts it like this. James 2 verse 17. Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Well, what does that mean? If faith hasn't got works, then it's dead being alone. Does that mean that faith alone is not sufficient to save you? No, it doesn't mean that. What it means is that faith, if it's true faith, will not remain alone. It will always be followed by evidence. You know that somebody is alive because there's evidence that they're alive. There's breath in their bodies. Sometimes a person will be in an accident or some kind of a tragedy and they look like they're dead. And there's an old trick where you can take a little vanity mirror and put it under their nose or under their mouth and when it starts to cloud over that you know that that person is alive. Because there's breath in their body. There may not be much of a pulse, but there's a, there's a faint pulse. There's life there. Life is always something that is evidenced. Fruit. You know, I've learned a lot about gardening. I'm not a very good gardener. But I know this. If there's no root on the plant, there's not going to be any fruit. Sometimes you see something laying there in the garden is dead. And then you look and you realize, oh... It's been pulled up by the root. There's no root. No wonder it's not growing. There's no fruit where there's no root. But the Lord Jesus said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. Every branch in me that beareth fruit. Every branch in me that beareth fruit. See, the Lord has taught us in His Word about fruit bearing. And one aspect of the fruit bearing among the Colossians is seen here in verse 4 and in verse 8. He said, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all saints. See, there's evidence that they were truly saved. They now loved the people of God. Before, they had no time for Christians. Before, they wanted nothing to do with the company of God's people. But now, they love God's people. That's an evidence. That's fruit. But also in verse number 8, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. There it is again. The love that they had. They know that they are Christians. 
by your love. That's what Jesus said. By this shall men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Does that mean that we always agree? No. I've talked a lot in the past about my three siblings, my three sisters, two older, one younger. They all nodded my rope in different ways when I was growing up. The bigger ones who thought they could boss me about instead of my mother. The little one who gave me trouble because she just was trouble. But we love each other dearly. Sometimes we didn't agree. Sometimes we fought like cat and dog. But nobody ever doubted the love that we have one for another. That's how it is in the family of God. We don't always agree on everything. We don't always see everything the same way. But they'll know that we're Christians by our love. By the fact that we love one another. And the Bible says this, that love covereth a multitude of sins. There's a lot of things that you can actually almost ignore because of love. There's a lot of stuff we can put up with if we love a person. And Galatians 5 tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and so on. The fruit of the Spirit. That's what Paul is referring to here. So these people had definitely experienced the grace of God in truth. I'm not going to be able to go into my second point tonight about the godliness that was exemplified, but I just want to labor this for a moment. These people had definitely experienced the grace of God in truth because the evidence of it was there in the bearing of fruit. How fruitful are we in our Christian lives? I'm very conscious of the fact that sinners around me need to hear the gospel. They need to hear it. But they also need to see it. There's no point in me saying this, that and the other thing to people and then they look at my life and they think, that guy's a fraud. He's not the true article. He's not the true bill. He says a lot about the Bible and God and Jesus and all, but he doesn't live it. That's not going to work. That's not what the Colossians were known for. Paul said, The gospel which has come unto you as it is in all the world, it bringeth forth fruit. What a wonderful thing that is. To be like those who are spoken of in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. And with this I will close. Acts 4.13 Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Do people, when they look at us who profess to be Christians say there's somebody who has been with Jesus? That's the challenge. May the Lord help us to take it to heart. For his glory. Amen.